Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Oh, do you believe in ghosts, Ted? Mm, I do. But more importantly, I think they need to believe in themselves. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, a year ago... <laughs> <laughs> you can't laugh before you tell me the question. <laughs> All right. A year ago, you dismissed it as a racist conspiracy theory. But, <laughs> but now the lab leak hypothesis is looking more and more likely. What do you have to say for yourself now? <laughs> First of all... I'm not saying that I didn't dismiss it as a racist conspiracy, <laughs> but I certainly don't remember it. It feels like something you would have done. Yeah, I'm not sure if you would have done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, take that mainstream media is all I have yeah. to say. You yeah. know, I was on I was on the uh, the side of uh, of the lone voice crying in the wilderness, like the Weinstein brothers. You know, no, you were dismissing it as a racist conspiracy. Listen, theory. I am. I am simply rewriting the narrative to make myself <laughs> look like I was right all along. No, I don't know. It's funny that I think when it comes down to it, like it doesn't matter one bit whether there was a lab leak or not, but it's now become like this epistemological touchstone like this, like uh, like yeah. it represents everything about like why, you know, why the kooks are right. And the it's just like, uh Well, no, I think what it represents if you're not on the message boards or whatever is like that you really to can't trust the media on a lot of this stuff. And especially anything relating to coronavirus. They just haven't been reporting it well. You know, I, yeah, I was talking to uh, Yoel when he was here, we were talking for a while about this and that of all things always struck me as like such a plausible possibility. <laughs> like, yeah. that, I mean, it's not, that's not that kooky a hypothesis. Now, I have no idea whether it's true or not. Like, I haven't bothered to check. But it's not like no. that a virus could have gotten out from a lab that studies viruses is not that weird. Well, yeah. No, I actually had a friend. I have a good friend whose brother works in s some related industry. And he said way back, like over a year ago, that this looks like a lab, like analyzing the virus makes it huh. uh, more look like a lab. But I think people are just... Unless we're sure about that, and this is what they've done with the coronavirus in general, it's like they're giving information pragmatically, like not just in the sake of yeah. like telling people the ac accurate information, but 
what is the information that we can tell you that won't lead you to do something destructive or right. won't lead you to do something that we don't want you to do? Like, I think they did that a lot with the risks of the coronavirus. Yeah, that's super interesting. I remember a long time ago watching a, um, a talk from a behavioral scientist who was doing like mess- health messaging. And he was talking about how when you ask uh, women about what their risks are of developing breast cancer in their lifetime, it's like an order of magnitude higher than what it actually is. So they, they tend to believe it. Um, that it's way more common, but this means that they are way more likely to get checked up. Um, and so he was like, maybe it's fine that we continue to like make women believe that it's highly likely, but that, and that's like a, I don't know, it's a fairly innocuous kind of, of, uh, dishonesty, I suppose. But I, but all of this erodes trust in the community from the, like in the people, it's all going to come back. So like the, there was a lot of patronizing about risks where you're just like, well, like, but what is it really? Like, what are we just, <laughs> right. just, you know, and look, I don't know if it's, you know, maybe the, all the sheep will really need to be micromanaged with these careful communications, but it just, to me, it makes me, makes me really suspicious of like the CDC, you know, like, yes. I could just no. imagine the people around the committee, you know, around the table saying like, well, let's not, let's not say that. And that's why I think, that's why, you know, people have wondered why I'm so anti-outdoor mask mandates and, you know, that whole thing. It's because once you get it into your head that you can't trust them uh, with their information, even their data, but never mind their kind of recommendations or, you know, guidelines that they think are, if, if you realize that you can't trust them and that they're playing you, then it's like you don't, you no longer have any tether to true information at that point that you so like that's a that's a real problem yeah and that's for for me it's a big problem as well because like i'm on the tend to be on the other side where i actually largely believe that we can trust those kinds of data or whatever and it's it bugs me because it's gonna erode trust so like even when we have the real shit like when we're trying to convince people that there's no conspiracy it's like, well, fuck, man. What do we have left to stand on if we've lied about this? It's, it's a boy who cried wolf situation. Exactly, right. But, you know, seriously, like I, again, have zero knowledge about whether this was a live leak or not. But that China would try to uh, suppress that information is <laughs> not, not a kooky idea. Like The one thing I will say is I don't totally remember it. people getting slammed for suggesting it might have been a live leak. No. Yeah, no, I think there's, there's like now the, that I'm thinking the, of it. the key members of the IDW who were presenting it just were getting slammed in general for being doofuses. Right. <laughs> like, and now, and, and yeah. I'm sure there were people who worried that it could lead to anti Asian, you know, violence or something like that. But like, I remember it kind of being out there, but then people thought, no, nah, it was more likely a bat. But I like, mean, yeah, yeah. So, so I could be wrong. About that. Like, this is the thing what, what is going to cause more anti Asian sentiment? Uh, uh, a lab fucking up and releasing a virus or like blaming some Chinese street vendor for having like shitty bat meat. Like I don't, like, to me, it doesn't cut either way. I'm just like, well, people are going to blame Asians. <laughs> you, you just want to hate Asians. Like no matter what, like, you know, no, you don't have no. To if, if uh, I love Asians, some of my best friends are Asians. It's just that you don't need an excuse. Like the minute, the minute, you know, <laughs> you that it need came an excuse out. <laughs> to dislike Asians. No, the minute the virus was like pinpointed as coming out of China, forget it. You know, it's yeah. why they called it the Spanish flu back in the day. You know, yeah. our, my people used to be, you know, the, 
the Asians of the 20s. <laughs> <laughs> you remember Trump would call it the China virus. And then, like, yeah, reporters the Kung, would Kung Flu, which I, I remember you <laughs> laughing a little too hard at. You know, I saw it in your eye, a little bit of... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm a huge fan of our... Asian. I'm a huge fan of Your Asian. porn preferences do not count, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> well, then, never mind. <laughs> Speaking of things, so, like, yeah, and I just thought of this as we're talking about it, because it has been the narrative in the media that, like, or, you know, in the sort of revisionist media that, that like, the mainstream press has a lot to answer for now that this lab leak looks more likely. And I'm just, I, I guess I just don't remember when, like, there was this uproar about people suggesting a lab leak. But what this reminds me of is something I learned in this last week, that the Oberlin thing <laughs> with the cultural appropriation of the sushi, like, that whole thing that was in every single, like, IDW-adjacent article for five years, they, like, had a sushi company removed because it was cultural appropriation. That's just not true. It just didn't even happen. <laughs> I So I... I came across that, just that, like, that fact, or supposed fact, but I didn't catch, what, like, how did that story get created? I mean, we, we I'm sure we dedicated a segment to this. You yeah, know? probably saying, well, it's Oberlin, like, what the fuck yeah, do you right. expect? <laughs> like, but it's not even, because it didn't, <laughs> that's the thing. Uh, so, like, why, who created the story? Was it, was it Christina Hoff Summers, and, like, you know, like, conspiring to get people, like, I, I pissed don't off? I think so. I don't think she was behind the, like, the... <laughs> but the she voted conspiracy. in favor of it. <laughs> right, when, when they get together in there, in, the, like, the Mr. Burns house, or, you know. The... <laughs> they all wear masks and say Fidelius to get in. <laughs> <laughs> but then they, they now don't wear masks because like, <laughs> they don't want people to think they care about <laughs> They the have only over their eyes to make sure that we... Uh... Yeah. Yeah, you know, like you think I could be invited to like an eyes wide shut party, like, but yeah, you're all, you're, never you're suspected one. by people on both sides, rightfully so. <laughs> I mean, you're just a, yeah. you're very unreliable <laughs> communist, but then I'll also go to you know right. some right. Uh, white supremacy sex party. <laughs> <laughs> um, but wait, so so what's this? Is there a story about who started the rumor? I don't know. Like I, I've heard this. Like may, as far as I mean, it might even not be true. Like <laughs> maybe it did happen. <laughs> Uh, I feel like you told me. No, don't. No, I have no idea. The, this should is, we look uh, it up? Maybe we started it. Um, by the way, we should say what we're going to talk about today. At this point, yeah. Let me, let me just look this up now. So here are the here are the. You should just not edit any of this out. Just like so people know what I'm going through. <laughs> no, I forget it. So what really happened? Uh, there's a there is a a box. Yeah, Our that's story. what I was looking. But you right. see, it's very long. The resulting story published in the student-run Oberlin Review quotes a total of six students on the Asian food issue. One student from Malaysia had no problem with the dining hall's treatment of Asian cuisine, seeing it as a cultural blending of sorts. This is a, this was a dish called chicken sushi, which was just like a slapdash use of like leftover chicken, apparently. The remaining five, four of whom were from Asian countries whose cuisine had been adapted, and one of whom was Vietnamese-American, all had some degree of problem with it. Um, a Japanese student's take on the sushi was one of the harshest comments and would become a staple of national media coverage due to its use of the left-wing language of cultural appropriation. So whatever, they got like basically three kids to say they didn't like it. Hmm. It's taking too much mental energy to discover what really 
we still haven't even started talking about like what we're going to talk about no. this episode. So in the, you know, like we had Ted Chang um, talking uh, or at least alluding to some of his work last episode. Today we have David Pizarro <laughs> on the show to uh, talk about um, his recent work that's making a buzz. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me, Tamar. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, thank you for joining us. It's an honor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're, you're going to talk about a paper you did with sh- who's the lead author? What's his Raj name? Raj Anderson, who Raj is Anderson. my um, my PhD student, great kid, and uh, also with Sean Nichols and Rachna Kamtakar, uh, who are both in the philosophy department here, and my homies. Frenemy of the podcast, Sean Nichols. That's, that's right. He can't even be bothered to care that much. Yeah, and he doesn't even try. You know, he doesn't even try to. He never even listened to his own episode. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, it was kind of subpar, so he's probably right. <laughs> um, yeah, so we have an article called False Positive Emotions, Responsibility, and Moral Character. But before that, if we have any time left in this intro segment... <laughs> <laughs> we have to talk about something that's very fucked up. Yeah, is it? Well, okay, that, we can talk or about not. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is a paper that was published in January on the ability of uh, facial detection algorithms to tell someone's political orientation. So just an algorithm taking a, a single picture of your face from like your Facebook profile and- being, Or a dating app. Or a dating app being substantially above chance at predicting whether you're liberal or conservative. 70, like 4% or something, right? 72? Yeah, 73, I think. Um, no small feat. And way better than any other method they had of right. doing it. Like, uh, Right, so- human beings- so if you use this method and you have you show two uh, you show two faces and you have one of them is liberal and one of them is conservative uh, and you know this for sure and you show this to participants they're at 55% accuracy so they're slightly above chance of being able to tell which one's the conservative and which one's the liberal right um, but on the the uh, the algorithm 72% yeah um, and among US Facebook users uh, it was 73 Dating websites, 72, and then the UK and Canada is 70 and 71. And they say that, like, you might think that the person's race might explain this, but that only, if you only showed people uh, same uh, same race, right, or gender. Yeah, gender, that, age, and ethnicity, like, which, you, which were obviously going to be correlated with this stuff. Taking all that into account and, and matching faces on those uh, still, uh, the, the algorithm is still better. So this is an article written by um, Michael Kaczynski, who people might have already known about because he's done he a while back. He did one of those articles on like detecting whether people are gay or not um, from their faces. These, you know, computer um, whatever machine learning algorithms or not even machine learning, just algorithms that he builds um, that look at individuals faces. And you can tell apparently a lot just from people's face. And he was. His work was a work that inspired the Cambridge Analytica people, and that's where that scandal came from because people were using his methods um, right. to, to gather data about uh, about people's whatever characteristics from Facebook. Um, I think one of the most interesting things from this finding is that even when you give personality tests, yeah, so like the detailed Big Five, and we know for a fact that that Big Five is correlated, uh, Big Five personality is correlated with political orientation. So specifically, openness to experience is higher in liberals than in conservatives, and conscientiousness is higher in conservatives than liberals. Um, 
this facial detection algorithm still does a much better job um, yeah. than personality tests at predicting whether you're conservative or liberal. Yeah. That's that was that was a very striking finding. Yeah. Some of the items seem like they're almost directly act, asking questions right. about whether you're right. conservative or liberal. So, so the fact that this does better than that, and and like so, what is it picking up on? It says Kaczynski found that emotional expression had fifty-seven percent predictive power. Liberals being more likely to show surprise and less likely to show disgust. Who shows disgust in their Facebook profile picture or their dating? Uh, this, profile pictures that I do not know, but I just love the finding <laughs> because it's consistent with UL and, and my work. Right. Um, but yeah, who <laughs> like that made me, that was a red flag for me. Like who, who are these people that are showing disgust? Yeah. It seems very odd. Like, I don't know, maybe it's a good strategy on a dating website to look grossed out at things. Yeah, you know? like, <laughs> I'm better than you. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, uh, head orientation. Yeah. Liberals tended to face the camera more directly, which was surprising to me. Like, I would, I, me too. I would yeah. have predicted the other way. Right. Yeah. I would think like the sort of flexing of, of you know, the power, whatever facial power posing. Of but I think directly. it's like, it's not looking another person in the eye. It's like looking a camera. So maybe like liberals are more narcissistic yeah. or something. Yeah, you know? maybe. Wait, you no, can't. liberals are. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, liberals are facing the camera. Maybe. Maybe they're just more selfies yeah. by liberals. Yeah. yeah. But even then, so this is the the uh, the thing that intrigues me, which is you can have the algorithm just do a bunch of, um, right, like basically it just pulled out uh, features of the face and converted them to quantitative things. Like whatever, you know, whatever information it could have, it just generates up a, a whole bunch of data on the particular characteristics of a face. And then it's, it's used to, to predict. If you get the things that like we would look at, like, um, you know, like this, like facial emotional expression, um, or direction of head, things that we could list as characteristics of a face. Yeah. Even when you include all of those things, it doesn't get up beyond the high 50s. So yeah. basically the algorithm is detecting stuff that we don't seem to understand. It's Well, I mean, that makes yeah. sense, right? Like, I think we detect things that we couldn't articulate, like when we look at another person's face. I, I do feel like I at least believe that I know a lot about a person by, you know, looking at their face, but, you know, whether they're a nice person. This is how you, you just become racist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. I don't know what white. it is about you and your dark yeah. skin. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's pretty much the opposite, actually. But yeah. no, wait, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, but I couldn't say how I know that. Like, I can't describe how I know these things, but right. I at least feel like I can tell these things right, some um, sort of pretty instantly. Thing. And so, like, the fact that an algorithm might be picking up either a different set of things or even, like, if they're picking up a lot of the same things, we wouldn't necessarily know from personal experience how to, like, what that is. Right. The algorithm, whatever the algorithm's intuitions are, are better than ours. Like, that's because if humans are at about 55% accurate, um, the algorithm is picking up on whatever je ne sais quoi. <laughs> well, right. For, for political, yeah. like I for, actually for don't think I could, yeah. I, that's actually one that, you know, that's a feature of a person. I don't typically think that I can, um, guess by just looking at them unless yeah. there's a sort of obvious things <laughs> like a red tie or a blue one. Um, what I don't think is clear from this article is 
uh, facial hair. So, so I, you know, maybe picking up on, I don't remember reading that they were uh, controlling for that. You know, maybe there's just more beards amongst liberals or something. Um, so it says a more detailed picture could be obtained by exploring the links between political orientation and facial features extracted from images taken in a standardized setting while controlling for facial hair, grooming, facial expression, and head orientation. So here's the question. Is it stuff that people are doing, like changing the tilt of their head or growing facial hair or not? Or is it the alternative hypothesis, which is there is just something about your facial morphology that's that's right. like, yeah. I mean, that's what I'm assuming. For it to be an interesting result, I think it's got to just be about your face facial morphology because they're not looking at the whole picture, right? Like if it's some someone on like a pickup truck or something right. they like actually that. They actually narrow down to just the face. They just the face. Yeah. Yeah. So then um, it's got to be, right? Like what well, else? It, I mean, so, it, you know, maybe it's picking up on piercings or or some degree of facial hair or something like that. Like, I think right. we don't know. Kaczynski, the author, seems to think that that doesn't matter because he kind of frames this. And I don't know the guy at all, but like he kind of frames this as he like he's interested in privacy. And so he wants to see what these companies are probably already able to do with our pictures which I think is, in this case, honestly, everybody puts their political orientation, like, that's how we know. <laughs> that's yeah. how we know that the face is predicting it. So, like, that an algorithm can predict my political orientation isn't that concerning to me. So I agree with you that it would be more interesting if there were some morphological features. I just can't conceive of a good hypothesis for what that would be. I, I think it might just not be picking up on things um, that are obvious. But, so, I, like, people yeah. don't have... Like I, I, I bet a vanishingly small percentage of people had pierce, like visible piercings on their face, like a nose piercing. No. Yeah, so, not a vanishingly small, but a small percentage of people. Um, maybe, maybe, um, you know, facial hair. But which way do you think that liberal guys are more beardy? I don't know. Just guys, true. not yeah. the women. <laughs> maybe do the you tell Bella too. like if you get too liberal, you'll <laughs> grow a beard? Um, yeah, this is a million, over a million individuals in the data set, which is kind of crazy. I um, mean, it's, uh, the, the issue is like, first of all, do you care? Like, you know, like I think I can get into the zone where it's like, I assume that anybody who wants to know anything about me can right. know it and yeah. uh, that's fine. I'm fine with it. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I personally don't care. And I, 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 the reason I said, I don't know the guy is because I was about to cast aspersions by saying, I think he's selling this as a, like, we should be worried about privacy as a way to, like, right. make this an interesting thing. Where right. actually I think, like, no, I mean, it's just, it's just kind of interesting that, that an algorithm looking at just the face can predict this. But, like, for God's sakes, like, these are people who are putting all of their information on Facebook and on LinkedIn and on dating websites. Like, I don't, I don't right. think the big concern is that the government now knows what, what your political orientation is. And that battle has been lost, like, protecting, <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> your privacy. Like, yeah. um, right. But so... How well do you think you can like know somebody from look from their face, like just it's, like looking at them? It's super, um, yeah, that's super hard because I have the same intuition as you about kind faces. 
Like yeah, you can just kind, like, tell when exactly. somebody's like seems like a good person. Like they, and I don't know what it is, but you know, whatever Tom Hanks has, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like right. that kind. Um, I just don't know whether it's all confirmation bias on my end. Like I don't, I don't know. I don't. And and am I like using other information? Like you know, we see faces dynamically, and we see people smile. This will dovetail maybe into the second segment, but we glean information about people from like, what do they smile at? Right? right. Like what, like all that stuff might be providing valuable information. That's not just the face, but we're like you said, we don't quite know what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it, but I think like when you, I, I don't know, I'm sometimes aware of this and maybe, you know, sometimes it's cause I've taken edibles or something, but I think a lot of the time <laughs> it's the just not, it's, it just feels like there's the conversation you're having, but then there's this other sort of form of communication with faces that's going on at the same time that is equally sort of rich and interesting and like uh, information packed or something. And that often the conversations, you know, will be affected by like the kinds of expressions that you're getting, but you would not be able to describe how it works or what it is that you might be picking up on. But you're picking up on so many things as you have just a conversation with somebody yeah. from their face. Right. I suspect that it's less morphology and more what's going on contextually. Like, um, and, and here's one example where, where it's kind of obvious. So like if someone's flirting with you, they can hold their stare just a little bit longer. They'll hold eye contact yeah. just slightly longer and you're just yeah. like, Whoa, something's happening, you know? Yeah. And yeah. it's a really powerful form of communication. Right. But you know, like, like I wouldn't have been able to like now that you say it, it seems mm -hmm. totally right. But like, <laughs> no wonder I've been I, trying to flirt with you for eight years. <laughs> no, no. Like now I know why you just stare at me. But like, <laughs> no, but like that. Yeah, I'm sure those kinds of things that you would have to, you know, you would have to have some special expertise to really be able to articulate. Yeah. But they must happen all the time. Things like that, exactly like that. Yeah. But that's why I find this stuff kind of interesting because it's a static one time, you know, like mm -hmm. one of the things uh, Kaczynski says in the article is like, we didn't even look at multiple pictures, right? So like, who knows how, how powerfully predictive if you just use two right. or three pictures, it might be. Um, yeah. The fact that it's completely static, people aren't responding to anything other than whatever the presence of the camera. Yeah. What and does he say? He says like, this is unlikely to be like the high level of an estimate of how good these machines could be. Right. Like, uh, because they, they actually have so much more information than just one photo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and again, they also have you saying what your political orientation <laughs> is, <laughs> which right. is the only way they know that it worked. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah, no, who, who knows? I mean, there is this, there, there used to be this, sci you know, this quote unquote science, it was a pseudoscience of, of physiognomy where people would say like, oh, you can tell people's character traits from the particular facial characteristics and you know of course like they would show an illustration of like hook nose person and say that's greedy or whatever right um and it was you know dismissed as pseudoscience but like the these lately the way that these machines are able to tell from faces a whole bunch of stuff about you it's still pretty fucking fascinating yeah um and i don't know i don't I, if I'd the woke left gets a hold of this technology like i you know i don't know what's gonna happen this is the this again this is the sort of like you know fear that's selling these results which is yeah. um whatever you know political parties could use this information to specifically target people for like and it's like 
come on, man. People have been doing this for a long, long time. You don't need... You don't, <laughs> you need, don't some, need AI. Yeah, yeah, you don't need AI. Um, yeah. Like, what are you worried... The gay stuff, maybe, all right? So, like, maybe if you don't want to be outed. Um, but, like, all of those studies were validated by looking at dating websites where people are putting that they're gay. And they're probably acting all gay in the, in the, <laughs> in the photo. picture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was just like flannel on a woman, you know, it's like any hint of flannel. Um, and like a mitt, softball mitt. <laughs> um, so, so I don't know if you could like use this to distinguish between people who were trying to hide their sexual orientation or in this case, even h- trying to hide their political orientation. Who knows? You know? But I don't, I mean, to be fair to the study, I don't think like you're taking your Facebook picture. You're thinking, I want to show people that I am a... A fiscal conservative, but like <laughs> right. progressive on social issues or something. Right. It'd be interesting to see. Like, this is where I think it would be interesting to pair this up with some sort of like anthropology. You know, like you look at old timey pictures, they were all posed a certain way. There might be trends that sort of sweep through, uh, you know, Facebook yeah. where people tend to pose a certain way. Like, there's more. Well, I'll never forget Samin Vazir, who's a psychologist um, formerly of the Black Goat podcast. Is that over? It's over. Oh, that's why Alexa's... Uh... Yeah, we could talk about that. <laughs> yeah. uh, our good pal, Yoel Imbar, was left at the altar. He was yes. abandoned by, the abandoned anyway, by Mickey. Now it's Mickey, like one psychologist, no beers. And one psychologist, no beers. So they recently released an episode where Mickey announced that he's leaving. And I think we should give Mickey a bit of a hard time because... He said, one of the things he said was, I think I've said all I have to say. I was like, really? Really, Mickey? (laughs) Well, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't have that much to say. (laughs) He's a professor. He has a lot to say. (laughs) Anyway, Alexa Tullet is the new co-host, and uh, I think podcast is going to improve quite a bit. But but bon voyage, Mickey. (laughs) Bon voyage, Mickey. Uh, But Samin was pointing out that, like, you could tell... Uh, big five personality traits from people's pictures. And one of the things she said during the talk, if I recall correctly, is you think it's hard. Like you think this is like cool and crazy, but really like just imagine. And then she did a motion of holding up your phone like really high and just like posing a certain way Yeah, where it's like, yeah, that is a narcissist. <laughs> That's just, right. and it just turns out that it is correlated with narcissism. Like the way that you take your selfies. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a narcissist with how I take selfies. Your uh, your dog is in all your pictures. What does that say about about your sexual orientation? <laughs> I think it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> you don't need an AI like no. genius. To, uh, it's like literal dog whistle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all, right. all right, we'll be right back with David Pizarro <laughs> to talk about some of uh, his new research. This episode is brought to you by Wine.com. You know, in this day and age where everything gets delivered, a lot of people still think you can't purchase wine and spirits online and have them delivered right to your door. Well, those people who think that, they are wrong. They're very, very wrong. Because with Wine.com, you can learn, explore, and purchase all from the comfort of your own home, on your time without the need to stand looking just bewildered like a like an idiot in the wine aisle for like two hours just stunned like burden's ass wine.com is the only site to offer extensive free professional ratings and test and tasting notes so whether you're a novice like me or an expert 
live chat with wine experts to help you find the perfect bottle for every occasion. And if you don't feel like live chatting, I love this. This is great. There's these easy filter and sort options by price, vintage, and varietal, and region. So you can say, I want a French red under $20 with a rating over 90 And it'll give you all the bottles that meet those criteria. There is free shipping year-round if you get their stewardship membership for only $49. Uh, no minimum purchase. So you could just get one bottle or you could get 100 bottles. It doesn't matter. It's free every single time for a year with that membership. They have a, an app, a five-star wine.com app on, on iPhone and also Android. I haven't even used this yet. Um, you can scan and rate and buy on the go. So you see a wine or liquor label, you can just scan it and see ratings and tasting notes no matter where you are and then save your favorites to my wine on the app. And this is, this is tough for me to say, but you can also get booze. You can get real booze, the hard stuff in California, New York, Florida, and New Jersey. This is another reason for the coastal elites to be even more smug than they already are. Although if you're in Florida, you have a lot of your own issues. So pipe down, pipe down. And we have a great deal for you um, if you go to wine.com slash badwizards, just badwizards, wine.com slash badwizards, you will get $50 off your first order. Again, wine.com slash badwizards, get $50 off your first order. Terms apply. Thank you to wine.com for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners, all of our supporters for uh, everything they do. You know, Tamo, the other day, somebody, uh, I think it was on Reddit, they were like, why do they do this every time? Like, you know, they were they were asking about uh, this segment. And what mm -hmm. they didn't realize is, I think, how much joy we get from expressing gratitude to our listeners. Like, I, this is often for us. So you can skip it if yeah, you want. It's, but it's like, not for you. It's not, it's for, not for you. you Reddit guy. Reddit guy. Because <laughs> you're definitely a guy if you're bitching about that. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, so thank you to everybody for all of your communication. We get, we've gotten a lot of nice feedback from the Ted Chang episode um, on Reddit and on Twitter. And it makes us happy. Yeah. All the people who, are, who didn't like it aren't telling us. That's right. For it's once. Like, I like that. I like that. Yeah. Um, uh, if you want to reach out to us, uh, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com or you can tweet to our Very Bad Wizards account at verybadwizards or at Tamler and at Pease. You can join in the Reddit discussion if you want to talk to some fellow listeners. Discussion's always lively. We have a growing community. Would you say 7,000 last time? Yeah. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, they like to make fun of my bad video game That was abilities. hilarious. Somebody said... Yeah that they would have paid to see Tamler <laughs> playing Soma. 
which made me laugh out loud. And then right before we recorded, somebody posted. I don't think it would be like, I think it would get old pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, to be fair, like I said, like, I don't think I was <laughs> very, I don't think I was that much better. Uh, but yeah, there's something funny about you yelling at, at your like screen. <laughs> There was a lot of yelling, a lot of blaming, a lot of aspersions cast <laughs> on um, both sides. So, uh, yeah, join Reddit, conversations, reddit.com slash r slash wizards. Uh, remember, like, Catherine once, like, I wasn't getting something and just kept telling me, like, to do the thing. Like, it was something like sit down in a chair or something, or there was something I wasn't doing that, and, and she just kept, like, and getting, she was getting very frustrated with That me. happened to me as well. Like, part of the gameplay is that if you go and you query, like, you can ask Right. You can ask questions and <laughs> right. they have like, you know, a bank of five different answers. But if you keep going back, she just starts getting really short with you, <laughs> which I, I took that personally. <laughs> uh, I just, me too. I'm sorry. I'm not like a, you know, robot mind, you know, like, just doing my best here. <laughs> you can also uh, follow us on Instagram. Uh, where we post all of our episodes at Very Bad Wizards. Take some time if you are so inclined to rate us on Apple Podcasts and maybe even leave a review. Um, again, we don't know if it helps, but it helps helps to read them for me. You can also, it's all for us. It really is all for us. Uh, you can also listen uh, to us and subscribe to us on Spotify, and we appreciate it. But thank you uh, to everybody for reaching out to us. Yeah, and if you give a good five-star review on Apple Podcasts, other people can find us. Yeah, I hope that's true. And if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, you can do that in any number of ways, which you'll find all of them at our support page on verybadwizards.com. Um, you can give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal, or you could become one of our beloved Patreon patrons. At any level of support, you get ad-free episodes. Um, at $1 and up, you get um, every volume, five volumes of uh, Pisa's Beats. And they've been getting a lot of praise lately. People have been like on your, you know. Um, I, uh, when people, I was telling Tabler, when people say nice things about my beats, it's pretty much like nothing else matters that day. <laughs> Just yeah. showing my daughter. <laughs> like, look at this tweet. Uh, but yeah, I like to think after eight years, maybe, maybe I've gotten slightly better. <laughs> yeah. No, they've been dope. <laughs> Thank you. Lately. Um, yeah, you get that at $1 and up per episode, $2 and up per episodes. You get uh, our whole archive of bonus episodes, and we have some bonus episodes ideas coming up. At, at $5 and up, you get our Brothers Karamazov series, um, which you can also get on Himalaya, and you also get to vote on, and I guess we called it last episode, which yeah. wasn't that long ago, but I guess we called it, um, it will be Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of scientific rev revolutions but we will definitely oh, i'm sure do the trial maybe yeah. this summer too, yeah, because be a it's one. a good summer yeah. episode i think and you can uh get our go to uh, merch through cotton bureau we have great t-shirts and hoodies there and sweatshirts and you can get the very bad wizards mug and when you get it let me know how it is <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't gotten it. I, you know, I, I'm I'm gonna see Tamler this summer in Montana. Maybe I'll just take take the mug. Take the mug. I'm sure there's a way to get it. I just <laughs> like you have to be in the U.S. With, I, which I am, but still. 
Yeah, so thank you so much for uh, everything that you do, all the ways that you get in touch with us, and um, and especially to those of you who support us in this tangible way. We're really grateful. We really appreciate it. All right, so I am pleased to welcome to the podcast David Pizarro um, from Cornell University, who has just published a paper along with Raj Anderson, Rachna Kamtakar, and Sean Nichols. Um, called False Positive Emotions. False Positive Emotions, Responsibility, and Moral Character. David, welcome to the podcast. Um, Can you tell us about this study? Thank you. I like this because, you know, a lot of times I feel like the podcast is already just summers at all. So, you know, it feels feels good to be a guest. (laughs) That's... Um, uh, Yeah, no, sure. This was, uh, uh, to be clear... Tamler suggested we do this. I, I'm very humble. I don't like talking about my, my my own work. But this is, I think, right up the alley of, especially like old-timey Very Bad Wizards. In fact, there's yeah. a direct, I think, um, there's a, an episode where we alluded to some of these topics that I think inspired um, somebody. Yeah, the Fiery Cushman The one, Fiery right? Cushman episode, yeah. Um, yeah. So the basic idea in this set of studies was uh, and also, Sean Nichols and Rajna Kamtakar wrote a separate paper on this stuff alone. But it it's, sort of comes from um, uh, a something that Bernard William pointed out, but that the, certainly other people have mentioned, which is there there seems to be this paradox when people commit harms by complete accident. Suppose that like I get in a car accident through no fault of my own, like somebody pulled out right in front of me and they die. Um, and uh, I feel really shitty about that. In fact, there are a lot of people who go through this. There's, so we mentioned in the paper, there's a website dedicated to just people who go through this um, called accidentalimpacts.org. And uh, on one point of view, it seems weird because you had no control over what happened. You certainly didn't intend it. You played a causal role, but not one that you could have foreseen or anything like that. Yet most people feel a great deal of guilt over having been sort of the cause of this. But like your friends would say, well, it wasn't your fault. It's not, you know, you didn't, you, you certainly don't deserve blame. Don't be so hard on yourself. But the alternative is if somebody just didn't feel guilt at all, right? If yeah. they were just like, yeah, it wasn't my fault. Like, so the little girl died, you know, um, yeah. it's their fault for pulling out in front of me. The um, Bernard Williams example is a lorry driver. Right. Which, and I'm not even exactly sure what, what a, what a lorry sort of is. Some truck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a, like a ink British word for truck, I guess. Right. Um, sort of backs out and like has absolutely no way of seeing a young girl that's just run over and killed. Right. And so uh, his point, like you said, was if the guy didn't feel any guilt, we might wonder about that person, even though we recognize that it's not his fault in in one sense. Right. It's sort of weird. You both are trying to convince him that he shouldn't feel bad. But if he agreed right away, you'd be like, wait, hold on, let me convince you a little bit more. Like you should, you should have resisted this a little bit. Ah, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not my fault. Anyway, uh, you going to the game tonight? <laughs> no, I'm going to the little girl's funeral. You asshole. <laughs> um, uh, Right. And I, and, uh, so the idea that we had was, uh, really wondering whether or not these, what we call here, false positive expressions of guilt. And this, this really comes from Sean and Rajana's analysis of this in their previous paper where they point out, well, look, like 
sometimes emotions overfire in situations that they weren't necessarily designed for. And they have some analogs of this happening in the natural world where, um, well, it's easier to just say, like, imagine that you uh, feel fear over um, a snake that's not venomous. You just, like, feel a lot of fear because it looks a lot like a venomous snake. There, your fear on their language would be a false positive. Like, you wouldn't, like, even though... uh, like there is no actual danger, you feel the fear. So their idea was maybe this is like this this is good language to talk about this guilt. Like even though technically you're not responsible, you're not blameworthy, you shouldn't feel bad, your guilt is nonetheless overfiring. And the basic idea behind all these studies is is that overfiring of the guilt um, a signal that you're a good person? Like are people using that as information that you have an underlying good character? And so so we used that in fact, I think in our Fiery Cushman episode, we literally talked about an example where you spilled coffee on somebody by mistake, and the person says, don't worry, it's not your fault, but you feel bad nonetheless. And that feeling bad seems to just indicate something good about you, like that you would also feel bad in cases where it was your fault, and that you would go to some lengths to ensure that you didn't do that again, or that you were more careful, or something like that. So we did a series of studies basically trying to show whether, like, trying to answer the question as to whether or not people are gleaning character information from somebody when they express this guilt. Um, but you said something when we were first talking about this that that I think would be an interesting place to start, which was you were resistant to the term false positive um, yes. emotions. So, yeah. yeah. So this is how they describe it, um, or you describe it, these false positive feelings. That is, feelings that are not normatively appropriate, but are nonetheless characteristically triggered by the situation. And um, so that's how they define false positive. And then, like you said, they use the analogy of a garter snake. A false positive fear is if it's a garter snake, which poses no danger, but a true positive is if it's a rattlesnake. But like in that, like that seems disanalogous because in that case, there is like a clear independent way of measuring whether something is dangerous or not, whether it could hurt right. you or not. I think it's either venomous or not. It's either venomous or not. It either can yeah, harm you or it can't. Whereas calling this a false positive, like it's not normative, normatively appropriate. Well, based on what? Like based on maybe a certain conception of guilt, which has the necessary conditions for, you know, some sort of intention or, you know, yeah. neglect or something like that. Or, uh, but, um, but so, so like, I would, I guess I would object to calling that a false positive. Um, and then I, and, but, but what's interesting that you guys do, and that I think he did in the other study is you say, well, if it's not false, then why do people also try to convince the person right. that they shouldn't feel guilty, even though they also think that they should feel, you know, right. like, so it's like that, that contradiction at least is very interesting to explore. Yeah. So you said there, there are two things in what you said that I think are interesting. One is that it's not dichotomous which is true in the language of signal detection where you, you talk about false positives and hits and misses. Um, those are always real dichotomous outcomes. So like it's, it's just by its nature it's supposed to be clear. Like is it right. a twig or a snake? Like did you, did you make the mistake of thinking it was a snake when it was a twig or vice versa? Um, and here it's certainly a matter of degree. And that matter of degree, I think, feeds nicely into the second comment that you're making, which is, well, look, like 
whether it's normatively appropriate to express uh, guilt or to feel guilt would seem to be pretty de- like culturally determined or at least you know there's some even maybe individually like there seems to be some flexibility and i think you're right like the the language here of the you were kind of using the strict normative criteria of like you had to intend it control it you know foresee it or whatever we're using that just as a, a way of comparing two situations one where it's obvious that that everybody would uh blame you for doing it and one where it's pretty obvious that they wouldn't and i think that's where the the first person i mean the the third person thing where you you would try to convince your friend that they weren't actually blameworthy fits in where i don't think it's pretense that we say that like you shouldn't feel bad yeah you shouldn't feel guilty like it's not your fault like it's a very natural thing to try to say to the person but at the same time you also think they kind of should yeah and that's like yeah, you're, that's the very thing we're showing, right? Which is, but so, the, but rather than showing that one of those is true and one of those is false, I think that what that shows is that we're a little torn on that issue. You know? <laughs> yeah, maybe we're a little conflicted. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a good analogy of that kind of communication where, <laughs> where it's like, uh, it's almost like, do you fight over splitting the bill, or, or sorry, like paying, paying for the right. check? You know, where you like. Right. No, I might genuinely think that it's my turn or that I'm in the role where I should pay for you right. and like absolutely convinced that I'm right. But if you don't put up any fight whatsoever, right. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, well, you could have you could have like tried a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Or it's uh, like your wife like says, I don't want you to cheat on me. <laughs> I like I'll leave you if you cheat on me. But then she's also kind of saying, you know, <laughs> mixed signals, mixed <laughs> <laughs> She won't respect you if you don't. Kind yeah, of, I mean, she know. said that other woman was hot. I mean, what, was she <laughs> trying to? No, it's terrible. That's terrible. So um, I think the at, at minimum, all we really want is that that tension yeah. be there. That's um, all you need for yeah, the studies to be right. worthwhile. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by one of our absolute favorite sponsors, GiveWell. Look, you want your donation to help as much as possible. But did you know that where you give can make a bigger difference than how much you give? Did you know that, Dave? I do now. (laughs) (laughs) Choosing the right charity can be the difference between saving a life or not. GiveWell dedicates over 20,000 hours a year researching charitable organization and handpicks a few of the highest impact evidence-based charities. Donors have used GiveWell to donate over $750 million, David. And I am proud to say, I think we're both proud to say that a not insignificant amount of that money has come from our listeners. Yeah, I'm very proud of it. Like our, we, as you say, we actually know how much comes from our yeah. listeners because uh, they track this stuff because they are the ultimate spreadsheet nerds. And we're actually really grateful for all our listeners coming yeah, out. Over $200,000 in like a year or a year and a Amazing. half in the last thing. It was incredible. Uh, and give and, and here's the best part. GiveWell is free. They publish all of their research on their site for free so donors can understand their work and recommendations. And they do not take a cut of your donations. They allocate your tax-deductible donation to the t- charity that you choose. And when I was uh, gave to them uh, a couple months ago, I chose the charity Give Directly, which does direct cash transfers to families that are living in severe poverty or in a humanitarian crisis. And it's great. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder what, um, so like I was trust these people so much that I just let them pick when I donate. I just like, yeah, go for it, you know, because I trust them pretty much any charity they donate to is going to be an effective one. Um, but I, I, there's something about your approach versus my approach that says something about us. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. That you're uh, kind of a robot. Yeah, pretty much. I'm more than you. Surprisingly robot. more than you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but if you've never donated to give wells recommended charities before, you can actually have your donation matched up to $1,000 before right. the end of June or as long as their matching funds last. So, if you want to do that, go to givewell.org slash verybadwizards and pick podcasts they ask you when, when you're doing the transaction, uh, how you heard of them, and you can choose Very Bad Wizards when you check out so that you can let them know that you heard about GiveWell from Very Bad Wizards and they'll match your donation. So that's givewell.org slash verybadwizards. Select podcast and Very Bad Wizards at checkout. Our thanks to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. In... in uh, the first set of studies, we just presented people with like the most simple cases, exactly this coffee spill scenario where somebody um, spills coffee purely accidentally. They trip over something and they spill coffee on a person and the person says, don't worry, you didn't do it on purpose. You shouldn't feel guilty. And in one case, one scenario, the, the woman in this case says, um, no, but I still feel really bad. Another one, she says, no, you're right. Thank you. Like, I shouldn't feel guilty. Um, <laughs> in, in follow-up studies, we actually didn't have her say that because that seems to be like, yeah. kind of an asshole thing to say. So yeah. we just had her think it. So she thinks to it herself. It seems sociopathic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why we included that still. <laughs> Sometimes psychologists do this thing where we include a flawed study at first to show that we improved on it in the follow-up <laughs> study, <laughs> just to show that we did the work. That's smart. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a good signal of our diligence. And then, and then I think, so the, the key for us was asking a series of follow-up questions like, what did you think of the person? So their moral character, or they like likable? We asked, how likely do you think this person would be to feel guilt in, in the future when they actually uh, were culpable? Um, and we, act, we asked, like, these are questions we asked throughout. Uh, how likely somebody would be to commit a minor moral offense in the future. And so sure enough, what you find is that people who express guilt, even in conditions where they did not have sort of like they did not meet the criteria of culpability, people like them more. They think they had better moral character and they found them uh, more less likely to have to commit a moral offense in the future. So basically what we're saying is that this, this is just a good signal, like overfiring is just a good sign of character. And it boils down to that, I think. Um, well, yeah, again, I like it's not necessarily overfiring, <laughs> but I guess it's like it's showing that you will err on the side of taking responsibility for something. Yeah. But so and here's where like uh, we did a study to rule out one possibility, which was just anybody who feels guilt um, would be seen as having better moral character. And I think the story is just like we we want you to be calibrated in some way. Right. Um, but be more likely to err in one direction than the other. Um, but if you tell people like that, um, the person who spills coffee accidentally was going to meet a friend, their friend comes and they say, oh man, if only I had arrived five minutes earlier, even though I arrived <laughs> on time, then you wouldn't have spilled coffee on that guy. And now she feels guilty. Right. 
Well, so she's feeling guilt, but it really, that, that just seems crazy. It's like, too think, far removed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it seems like, like narcissistic. narcissistic. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's not just proneness to guilt. Like there are people who are, you know, like Walter Sinner Armstrong has talked about these like scrupul- scrupulosity, yeah. like people who like literally feel that stepping on a crack will break their mother's back or whatever, mm-hmm. um, where that's just crazy. Now. Does, you know, what does this show? I think this shows that we think crazy people are crazy, right. you know, <laughs> um, no, but, but it, it, it rules out it, that it's not. Yeah. It also, this is also, I think why I'm resistant to the kind of fault, like calling it a false positive. There does seem to be like a proper balance of right. like an equilibrium for how we expect people to feel about this, not too guilty. And you have to have enough of a connection to the original act that, right. because I think, don't you do a study where you, like the person is over atoning for it or or feels like too bad for for it where then it becomes out of whack again um i think it's just the person who who feels just, bad for okay. like having completely right. no yeah. no causal role yeah yeah i think that part like part of it is um if you want an agent like a person who um would be and this is where I think your point is a good one. Like if you want somebody who would be actually careful to not be negligent, for instance, like that they wouldn't, like next time they'll just watch where they're walking a little bit more, even though they're not culpable, the person expressing guilt, you might feel like, okay, they care enough that they're going to adjust themselves so that they don't make the same mistake again. It doesn't seem like an error. It may be really strictly speaking in a really local sense, like you don't, think that they deserve blame in this case but if what they're doing is calibrating their actions for the future then it seems like well that's a good sign a a good robot or whatever you would program a robot to be a little more it's like if you have like a star and a team leader like on a on a a basketball team and they lose a game and the star like even though probably maybe did all (laughs) that he could so like you know jason tatum and I don't know which way he falls on this, but like you want him to take responsibility for a, for a Celtics loss, even if like he probably played a pretty good game and did the best he could. And, you know, there were other t- there were other teammates that kind of uh, let the team down more than he did. It's like just a good sign. It's like somebody who's going to step up and own what happens. It's a good sign for their leadership. It's a good sign for their character, which is, of course, exactly your point. Yeah. And I think even it could be even stronger than what you're saying, which is it doesn't even, I think we're naturally sort of backward looking. So, so we say, yeah, it's a good sign of character that whatever LeBron took control over, like took responsibility for the Lakers loss, even though he scored 50 points or whatever. Um, But I think even in a forward looking way, that's giving us a good cue that um, say like a bot, like somebody who is in charge of running a factory and a worker has an accident and they like clearly don't like did not cause the accident and maybe they were up to code but they say like at the end of the day this is this comes down on me that means to me that they are going to in the future just learn like learn from that and maybe try to behave in a way that that doesn't happen again even if they weren't strictly responsible yeah Uh, strictly responsible in like one sort of technical sense in the in a really technical you know like in a Kantian sense. Because with the lorry driver, you know, like there is a sense in which 
the lorry driver was responsible. Like just the fact that he would get into a lorry in the first place without <laughs> even having a clear idea what that is. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, so, so, so they do have, but like, that's why I think the connection is important enough, maybe for exactly what you're saying, because it signals that for things that they are causally interacting with, they will be especially careful in the future. Yeah, that actually makes me think it's a good point, like that, that um, in fact, there is epistemic uncertainty about whether or not they could have prevented it. Right. And in those cases where... right you really, the counterfactual is pretty strong in your mind that like, maybe I took my eyes off the road, like maybe, you know? So right. that maybe their guilt is actually due to some uncertainty about the causal chain. And so, right. yeah, that's a really yeah. good point. Yeah. And if, yeah, I mean, I wasn't even making that. Yeah, <laughs> but, well, <it's> uh, <laughs> I think it is a good point. But uh, yeah, and, and you know, even in the Williams case and in some of these studies, you're, it's just sort of stipulated that yeah, it, right. it that they didn't mean to or it wasn't their fault. But like, if you actually visualize those scenarios, there would be no way to know that really for sure. Right. And when you do know for sure, it's the case of the crazy person who's taking like credit right. for or blame for something <laughs> like you mm -hmm. know, like. If you, in all seriousness, told me that you didn't wear your Celtics jersey and you feel really bad that they lost because you know that, like, yeah. had you worn it, I would be like, well, you're crazy. Like, you, you have a disconnect with, like, how causality works. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> uh, I have a cost, like, the Celtics, like, at least five <laughs> games this season. Um, still wasn't enough. They just didn't have it. But, um, but I will take my, like, I will own up to my role. I'm sure they appreciate demise. that, really. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, but I think that's actually a really, like, you never hear this brought up, actually. This is like a new point, as far as I know, that, like, this is, it could just be responding to the fuzziness of, like, exactly how much fault you might have in these yeah. situations and you definitely don't want people to kind of assume that <laughs> right. no i was like definitely there was nothing i could have done like that's why the the, the sociopath in your first study like he's like thank you you're totally right there was no way i could have avoided spilling coffee on you like that like that's yeah. not what you want you no know? exactly yeah no i think that's right now I wish I could reinterpret the already published paper and add this to the discussion. Well, no, um, you do. Yeah. This, this paper is like your first study. Now you're going to do it. <laughs> That's right. Um, you remind me with the psychopath comment that one of the studies that we did was we actually gave people um, these individual difference measures, the dark triad measures of psychopathy, Machiavellianism, yeah. right. and narcissism. And um, so this is, these are measures that have been used and labeled as dark triad, but it's simple you know, questionnaire dark measures. triad. Yeah, the dark triad. And, it's like um, all the psychology is just Marvel movies now. <laughs> <laughs> the MCU. The dark triad. <laughs> uh, so, so if you ask people whether or not they would feel guilty when they accidentally spilled coffee on somebody, it turns out that people high in psychopathy <laughs> say that they wouldn't. Right. So they are like, again, to use, to use this language... They are technically normatively accurate. According to Sean Nichols. Yeah. <laughs> Sean and Rajna. No, my name's on it too. I, I take responsibility for making these <laughs> arguments. Um, uh, they're being, right, like they're, 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 
responding right. in some sort of accurate way. But in reality, we know what's going on. <laughs> These are people who just don't, they're not prone to feeling guilt. They're not likely to feel guilt. Um, right. I mean, it's a little like, you know, the you always tell the story of going into the prison and giving <laughs> the trolley problems. And then there were certain prisoners who'd be like, but it's the same thing, pushing the guy and... Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like it, it's a little like thing. that to say it's normatively appropriate to like, be <laughs> just as willing to push the the fat guy as as flipping the sh that switch, because from one sense in one sense it is, but like at another level for people with you know, <laughs> normal normal <laughs> feelings, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I didn't even think that much about the false positive terminology because I like again I don't think it. It, it matters that much to the experiments, but it is, I wouldn't have, if, if an early draft had said people making this glaring error, I would have said, no, they're not, right. they're not right. making glaring error. <laughs> like <they're, laughs> it's, in fact, not only are they not making glaring error, everybody around them seems to think that they're not making a glaring error. So like, right. it's a particular debauched theory of, uh, but like, to be fair to all of you and also to the earlier paper with Sean and Rajna, like they, they also note that there are accounts of this where the person just is blameworthy and, and, and they also kind of highlight this tension, which is kind of interesting where we're actually like telling the person they shouldn't feel yeah. guilty while at the same time thinking they should and it would be bad if they didn't. And so it's just sort of interesting that we're pulled in these two different directions on, right. this, on this issue. That's what's so interesting about a lot of these more luck kinds of cases is we, you know, it's like the Nagel thing. Like we have one way, from one perspective, right. we see one thing. From another perspective, we see another. You know, in our conversation with Fiery, we were talking about collective uh, responsibility. Yeah. Even though it was so long ago. Um, do you think that tension is there too? Like push comes to shove, the individual that's part of the collective that didn't play a real causal role kind of know, do you think they kind of know that it wasn't? Yeah, like I think in a lot of cases of collective responsibility, it, like it's very clear that a person didn't play any causal role. This was like a lot of my first book, like the relative justice stuff, which uh, luckily I don't care about citations, but I know <laughs> oh, yeah, both Sean and Rachna and you guys failed to cite. But like, yeah, it's not even like, it's your connection to the collective that makes you responsible. And the expectation is that you will accept responsibility for it, even though you didn't do anything. Right. Um, but do you, but what I'm asking is less, even when it's clear, there's no causal responsibility. Do you think they have some intuition that they aren't actually responsible, but nonetheless, what they're doing is just being a good team player by like saying they are. I think it's like they are torn. You know, yeah. like, I don't think they think of it as a clear cut thing. I think they see uh, one aspect of it where they're not re responsible and it just sucks that they have to be the ones that, you know, suffer for something that they didn't do. Right. And then on the other hand, they think it's totally appropriate because that's the sort of the norms of, of that particular context or community. Yeah. And it's interesting that, that, you know, what cultures will do is, you know, lean more heavily on one or the other intuition. Um, yeah, exactly. Where, to the point where people can think it's crazy to think that they're responsible. Um, right. And the other intuition being like, you're crazy to think I'm not. Right. It's a, and, and because I think it is a, it's not, it's it, unlike, is this snake poisonous or not? It's, it's a kind of a moral question or certainly, you know, it's not one that you can do experiments to support one view or the other. It's, it's a, 
it's a question about like what norms govern your society. We have a magical noumenal uh, uh, Kantian re- green light if they're responsible, red light if they're not. <laughs> That's what Sean <laughs> believes that he has. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you're a regular Very Bad Wizards listener, you certainly know what BetterHelp is. It's the world's largest e-counseling platform. It's making professional counseling available, accessible, affordable, and convenient for anybody who's struggling with any of life's challenges. It's a service that gets you counseling anytime, anywhere, at the comfort of your own home. But you may be one of those listeners who has not gone to counseling or not sought out any therapy despite having some serious problems or even maybe some not-so-serious problems that you probably should talk to someone about. I'm here today to encourage you to give BetterHelp a try. Uh, BetterHelp will assess your needs and they'll match you with a therapist that has experience and expertise in the particular area that you might be struggling with, whether that be depression, grief, anxiety, uh, trauma, bad breakup, just uh, anger, poor relationships in your life. BetterHelp can help you. In under 24 hours, you'll be communicating with a professional counselor via online chat, telephone, text messaging, basically any mode that is convenient for you. It's professional licensed therapists. It's affordable. They offer uh, financial aid for those who can't afford it. If you want to learn more about BetterHelp, I would encourage you to go to betterhelp.com and check out the testimonials that are posted daily on their site. So, if you're interested, give BetterHelp a try by going to betterhelp.com slash VBW and you will receive 10% off of your first month. So join over the 1 million people who have already done this and who are taking charge of their mental health by going to betterhelp, that's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. You know, the, the last study that I'll talk about specifically is in the last study we actually had people play a trust game where you can, oh, yeah. um, you're basically given some amount of money. And uh, so say Tamler and I are in this trust game. I'm given 50 cents. If I give Tamler some amount of that money, it will triple. And then Tamler can choose whether to give me back some of that money. So, uh, but he could keep it all. So uh, my choice as to whether or not to send Tamler money depends on whether I trust that he's going to give me some back um, right. and then we can all be richer. Um, but he could just be selfish and keep it all to himself. So people who report that they would feel guilty in a scenario like this um, are more seen as more trustworthy and people behave to them, uh, like behave as if they were more by sending more money, which I think yeah. is just sort of just a behavioral version of the same thing. Yeah, which totally makes sense. Like I would do that too. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, I would believe that about the person. I really do think this is, I mean, it's a, it's a cool study. I think it's a really interesting phenomenon and it's like, it, it, it's in line with how I think of these things, you know? Yeah. Um, the, the character, the, the, like that, that, that's the explanation. Like that yeah. totally makes sense that yeah. this is a, this is how you judge whether this person is somebody that steps up or not, whether this person is, is somebody that you can trust whether this person is honorable, you know? Right. 
And it seems as if the judgment that somebody is trying to eke out of a responsibility is, would come very quickly for somebody who, who says, no, you're right. Like I didn't, right. They're like, wait, you're a little too quick to. So in the future now, I might not believe, you know, I might not trust that you're going to actually take responsibility when you ought to. But it's not just the future. No, 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 no. It sounds like, I think you're also just like, oh, you're not a good guy. No, I actually think that's what we're thinking. I, if forced to give like an evolutionary spin for it, I would say like, maybe this is because it's, it's good at predicting future. But I I think there is no need, psychologically, there is no, nobody gives a fuck about the future necessarily. They could just be like, no, he's an asshole, (laughs) (laughs) which is totally my psychology behind it. Um, (laughs) But sort of like, Taking a step back, the the what I one of the reasons that I like this this line of research in char- on character is because even though there's been this explosion of work on moral judgment, I always think that it's still like super narrow, narrowly focused on whether or not somebody did the right or wrong thing, or whether or not right. something is right or wrong. And I think again, like getting back a little bit to our discussion in the first segment, I think we're constantly making these assessments of yeah. other people based on their like reactions, their emotional responses to things, the the moral judgments that they make about other people. Like we get a lot of information about somebody else by seeing how they respond to these things. And I think that's yeah. like a lot of our social interactions are are sometimes character we'll, assessments. Yeah. Like, yeah. And sometimes we'll even I was talking to to my student about this. There are ways in which we even on purpose like will test out somebody's emotional responses. So, so suppose that I, I send you a picture of my new puppy, like doing something super cute. Right. I want your response to be like, Oh, you know, like a heart emoji. Yeah. Or something, something like that. (laughs) You know, or imagine you're right next to me. Like I want to see that you like also think that was heartwarming. I just start furiously jerking off (laughs) is my actual reaction. (laughs) But it's to most things I send you. Um, Like we're getting information from people's responses. And now like imagine if somebody doesn't, you know, imagine it's like your romantic partner and they just, you show them a really fucked up picture of like, you know, some Palestinian kid with half of their legs blown off. And they're like, well, you know, that's, that's life. You'd be like, no, like that's fucked up. I want you to like have an emotional response of the sort that would make me believe that you're actually a good person. Even if we have an argument about like whatever like yeah. first show me that you're human like that you actually care and it's not like i feel like the way we're presenting this is that every interaction is like some severe moral test or <laughs> no, something yeah. like that i think a lot of the time we do this stuff unconsciously yeah. we're doing it just sort of you know we just have expectations for how things will go and we raise topics and if the person reacts in a way that's wildly sort of out of line with that <laughs> yeah. that's going to like signals some stuff or if uh, like either way it could signal some stuff like in a good way or a bad way you know like uh but but also good that um you know maybe someone reacts in a way that you didn't even think of and like that that shows like it's extra points extra character they show some tenderness where i didn't think like it's happened to me where i you know i'm sort of like callously mocking somebody and they say you know actually i feel bad for that person i'm like oh fuck you're right (laughs) i should feel bad for that person Um, uh, yeah, you've done that to me and like, you know, like <laughs> trashed pretty much everybody and I try to defend them. <laughs> like Eddie Namias in particular, you're constantly defending him for my time. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why you hate him. <laughs> I love Eddie. Um, no, you're right. Like, in fact, I think that je- really it's more that we're gleaning information 
not so much that we're trying. I mean, I suppose sometimes yeah. we try, but that that information comes to us. But like again, sort of to get back to the discussion in the first segment, sometimes we don't even know what we're picking up on. And I think yeah. that's what sometimes you come off of a social interaction thinking someone's creepy. You don't know why. Yeah. It might right. have been something as simple as whether or not they like made the right face when you said something. You yeah. know? You're like, well, they you, but, but you have no idea, but you're like, I just got a creepy <laughs> yeah. vibe. Exactly. Like Jesse France. Like. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a way, you know, so Jesse gives talks sometimes where he uses, we all do, like, for, for fuck's sake, like our whole podcast is, you know, built on this, like, willingness to say shit. Yeah. But like sometimes Jesse, Kurt Gray is like this too. They'll give examples that are really fucked up and they're having just a little too much. Yeah. Like they're just a little too, I don't know. I don't know what the right word is. It's like they yeah, never no, had I know the, what you mean, the response in the first place that should have made them like recoil in horror at what they said. They're not showing the proper like, I don't know, like. they're not aghast enough at the thing. It's like, they don't even get how shocking it is. And it's not like, that's not the joke or something. They don't have a, I don't know. (laughs) It's like, I can't, you can't put your finger on it. But similarly, like you can also come away with an interaction thinking like, Oh, that person's really cool. Or that person's like a really good, she, she's really a good person. You know, like you can, and you don't know why you think that equally. Like you don't know necessarily why you might have some idea of something, but it's like, you just got, like, you just picked up something and, you know, and we, who knows how accurate these things are. And God knows, you know, like they're, it's probably biased in so many different ways, but like this stuff does happen. All I think the so. Time. I, that that part where you think someone's cool or a good person, I think that is severely understudied. Yeah. Like I don't. How do we? I think we can all agree. Like people agree a lot on who's cool. Yeah. But how do we get there? And and I think we get there really quickly. Um, you know, like you said, it might actually even be self fulfilling. So you treat people who you think are cool like in a certain way, and they act cool yeah. toward you. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> this. It's also super contextual. So one of the things I remember the first time I went to, it was one of the APAs, um, maybe like APA Central, the philosophical conferences, where it was one of the first times that I got to meet some like of these experimental philosophers. I think Josh Nob had invited me. For all I know, you were there. Um, but I remember uh, being sort of struck by how cool it was, like at a dinner time conversation, I could bring up the most fucked up thing. Yeah. And somebody like Walterson and Armstrong or, or Steve Stitch, they would not even bat an eye. Yeah. Like they would just talk about it as if like, yeah, oh, I get what you're saying. And then go like there. I was like, yeah. this is so cool. I don't have to like wait for them to express some sort of shock and then like ask me what I really mean. Like, no, they get it. Like they <laughs> So the takeaway then is experimental philosophers are a bunch of like sociopathic perverts. I mean a little bit, but just Jesse Prince maybe, but you know, but he's kind of <laughs> just <a> Josh no. <laughs> I feel I feel like I'm somehow maligning Kirk Gray and Jesse Prince, but I don't mean to, but kind of. But yeah. he he knows I love him. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Tell him that I do too cuz I'm like I don't want him to kill me. And not feel guilt about it. Yeah, exactly. All right. I think we're done. I think we've exhausted. Yeah. We've burnt <laughs> enough bridges. <laughs> but anyway. this is a good, good, like, I I was happy to see this paper as soon as I saw 
that, um, I don't know, somebody posted about it on Twitter a while ago. I put it immediately into Slack. I saw, actually, I saw that and it made me happy. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. And then, so uh, yeah, and for whatever reason today, and we're recording this pretty early because um, yeah. we both have traveling coming up, but um, like people were giving it a lot of love on Twitter. Yeah, Paul, I think it came from Paul uh and I think Josh Nob. Oh, did he just? Yeah. Sociopathic pervert Josh Nob. Yeah. Yeah. All very cool people. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, the stripped down nature of Twitter communication makes all of these processes a little more difficult. You know, like you can't tell sometimes how good or bad people are from just seeing their tweets. I think that actually causes a lot of a lot of <laughs> bad shit to happen. I think that's we just, true. Yeah. We just don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, All right. Well, thank you for giving me a chance to talk. Yeah, it was it was it was fun. Like I'm impressed you're still putting out work. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. Seriously, it's grad students. Uh, my PhD students have been extra productive lately. So, so yeah, I'm, you, I'm yeah. That's what you guys do. You just ride on the coattails of your grad students. I mean, it's a racket, right? It's like yeah. a it's like multi level marketing. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like made off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, um, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.